This is the sidebar for the week of July 14th, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. so many people who are resisting change and they can't come together for the common good. That's why it took a year and a half with the president's, uh, President Reagan's proposal to come together. And that was when they were dealing with less protected tax shelters. Today, you should probably have a much longer period of time, but that's not the choice Republicans and the president seem to have made. Henry Olson, a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, out with a new book titled the working-class Republican Ronald Reagan and the return of blue-collar conservatism. Let's talk about tax reform because you wrote a piece recently that the Republicans are, in your words, chomping at the bit to pass tax reform. How do they get there? How do they get to passing this tax reform? I think what they need to do is uh, pass something that gives everybody a stake in the system. I think they need to not just focus on corporate tax reduction and higher rate reduction, but they need to include payroll tax cuts for the working class people who put Donald Trump in the White House. I think they need to have some things that give Americans uh, a leg up in being hired for companies, and I think they need to give middle class tax cuts. They need to be more like a Reagan-style tax reform than the sort of tax principles that have so far been breached. So let's talk about how Ronald Reagan reached that point. At what point in his presidency did he talk about tax reform? How long did it take for negotiators to try to piece together a bipartisan plan? And what are the lessons we can take from that? Well, Reagan uh, had two major tax plans. The first was a tax cut in his first term, but he started his second term talking about tax reform almost as soon as he was inaugurated in his first State of the Union address. And he set out some broad principles, but then it took nearly a year and a half for congressional negotiators to come up with a final plan, and it required a lot of give and take. We finally got uh, people who were willing to do some things that they hadn't been willing to do earlier in the process. And it wasn't until the middle of 1986 when both parties came together, since the Democrats controlled the House and the Republicans controlled the Senate, to give Reagan's a landmark tax reform. And yet the parties were polar opposite then. They're certainly polar opposite today. What was Reagan able to do? How did he get Democrats on board? Well, at the time, Democrats uh, were reacting to Reagan's uh, theft, if you will, of their voter base, that Reagan had just won re-election with 59 percent of the vote. Millions of people who said they were Democrats and who actually at that time backed Democrats for the House had voted for Ronald Reagan, and Ronald Reagan was somebody who uh, held a lot of sway among their constituents. So they moved in a way to try and neutralize the tax issue uh, so that that was no longer a thing that would cause their voters to leave. Uh, they also recognized that the United States suffered from some real competitiveness issues because of their tax code, uh, particularly at the time there were a lot of tax shelters that didn't provide any economic benefit but allowed wealthy people and corporations to hide income. Uh, and they wanted to get rid of that from their populist economic days, and they found a way to do it that Republicans could get on board with. He said that he would take some or most. He realized he could never get all, that analogy of a loaf of bread. How did that play among conservatives during his presidency? Conservatives often wrestled with that, uh, but they saw, were so in love with him, and they usually saw that the compromise actually gave them half a loaf as opposed to subsequent compromises that claimed to give them something but actually didn't. So hardline conservatives sometimes opposed his compromises 
uh, for his Social Security tax and benefit compromise, uh, Newt Gingrich and Ron Paul and Jack Kemp either opposed or abstained. But by and large, they went along with it because when he, Ronald Reagan said there was half a loaf for conservatives, there really was. It wasn't just bipartisanship where the Republicans provided the votes for Democrat initiatives. And what was his role? Because another key player was the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, Dan Rostenkowski, a Democrat from Chicago, of course, the Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill. Was Ronald Reagan part of the negotiations? Was he immersed in the details, or did he take a, a more 30,000-foot uh, level approach? He was involved uh, with the negotiations with the chair people. Uh, there are times when Diane Rostentowski came in and briefed him on his side of the negotiations and worked out agreements on a uh, what he could do and what he couldn't do with Reagan personally, even if his staff wasn't in the room. But... Uh, generally, Reagan was somebody who was watching what was happening as opposed to daily negotiating. As a president, he just didn't have the time to do that. But he was involved, particularly with Packwood on the Senate side and Rostenkowski on the House side, to make sure that there was something coming together that he could be supportive of. Do you think he got it right? By and large, I think he did get it right back then. That We went from a top rate of 50% to a top rate of 28%. We eliminated most of the unproductive tax shelters. Uh, as important, he increased the personal deduction and made some other changes that lifted millions of working poor people out of the tax rolls. It's funny is when Dan Rostenkowski was interviewed by Peggy Noonan for her book, he said that he got that, that that was something that was important to him. Well, the fact is Reagan had quietly been talking about cutting these people's taxes and removing them from the rolls for millions of years, but he let Rostenkowski think that this was his idea and his approach when, in fact, it was always something Ronald Reagan wanted to accomplish. I was going to ask you what the Democrats got out of the deal. That was clearly one of the items. Anything else that they feel that they... Uh, won in these negotiations? I think the, uh, that was the biggest thing that I think that they came away with winning, that they also got an increase in the capital gains tax, that for a very brief time as a result of this, the capital gains tax was identical to the top marginal rate on income, which meant that capital gains uh, holders saw a tax increase. Uh, and I'm sure that was something that they valued. But it was necessary uh, to make the revenues balance. It was meant to be a revenue neutral bill and uh, you needed to have that revenue from the increase in capital gains tax in order to offset the revenue losses from other aspects of the bill. So from your standpoint, what were the lessons in this time period? And we should point out it was a two-year period between yes. the start of the outline of the proposal by the president and final passage and signature by the president. Well, uh, I think what you should realize is that legislation is a moving target, that legislation to be done well usually takes some time. It's not something that comes out uh, ex cathedra uh, from uh, the head of Zeus, uh, fully born. It's something that requires legislative input and compromise, and that takes time. I think uh, you also need to recognize that everyone needs to have a stake in this. What made this work was most people could see themselves as winners. It wasn't something where most people were sacrificing for a theoretical common good. And any tax reform that comes out of this White House and tries to go through this Congress ought to try to find as many winners as possible, which means not simply focusing on the top rate or the corporate rate paid by the largest companies or by small business, but focusing on the incentives that average everyday Americans face with the types of taxes that they're paying. And in researching this book and, and trying to better understand Ronald Reagan, his role in these negotiations, did you get a sense of how 
they unfolded, how they took place, where they took place, the dynamics between the key leaders? Uh, I focus more on my book on the principles of what Reagan was talking about as opposed to the details of who said what on May 17, 1985. But this was largely a, a, a negotiation that was taking place in Congress. It was largely one that was taking place between the Republican Senate and uh, Rostenkowski. Rostenkowski was absolutely the key player in making this happen. And the president and his staff were kept up to date and involved uh, in this. But it's something where they had a broad principle, but the details were very much worked out at the congressional level, at the leadership level. And I ask you that because I'm wondering if there are lessons today when it comes to this Republican president, a Republican Congress, and yet very deep divisions within the GOP on this and other issues. Yeah, I think one of the things that they should do is rather than put forth a proposal that has not been vetted by the entirety of the Republican conference, uh, what, that, what they should do is work given the circumstances that they probably don't have a year and a half to get something done this time. They need to make sure that the discussions and uh, the necessary compromises are taking place behind closed doors now before the bill is proposed, simply because it's become so late that by the time the bill, if they do go forward with it, as I'm sure they will, it, they won't even get started until September, and nobody's going to want to uh, take uh, this into the next uh, congressional session, so they'll need to pass it by August. That's a very truncated time period. They need to be working on their compromises now so that the first bill is closer to the final form than it was in Reagan's era. And you put out in, in one of your essays an interesting point, is that 5 million Trump voters supported Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012. That's right. So they flipped. Why? Uh, they flipped for a host of reasons. Uh, first of all, they were increasingly under economic pressure, that they were people who have been under pressure since China's accession to the WTO. They were losing income and jobs during the Bush era. They thought that Barack Obama was going to help them out after eight years. They didn't think that they had benefited very much. And they heard Donald Trump echoing their vision, that they believe that trade and immigration lowers their wages and costs them jobs. And Donald Trump said that in no uncertain terms. He said that they value Social Security and Medicare. They need that income. Uh, he said he wasn't going to touch them. And basically that they saw somebody who in his language and his attitude shared their worldview and said that he had their back. And both parties' elites had uh, shown themselves not to be in these voters' views trustworthy, and they thought Donald Trump was worth a try. We are in the middle of another debate, not over taxes, but over health care. And you wrote in the Washington Post how Ronald Reagan would fix the GOP health care mess and his approach toward government and health insurance. What was it? Ronald Reagan was uh, always in favor of the idea that government should provide health insurance or at least pay for needed health care for people who couldn't afford it, the way he talked about it as early as 1961, when he had already moved from being a liberal to a conservative, was that no one in the United States uh, who can't afford medical care because of a lack of funds should be denied it. And it's something he repeated throughout his career, including in letters and in private statements during, the, during his presidency. So I think what Reagan would have done and what the Senate is slowly moving towards is focus less on saving money and more on providing health care that the private market could depend on. I think he would have been more in favor of keeping coverage for people in the poor and the working poor through the Medicaid expansion, but also focus more on deregulation so that it wasn't a one-size-fits-all insurance market, but that in private insurers could innovate and create 
better products that people could afford with federal subsidies. Kind of the exact opposite of the priorities of the original House bill. You said something interesting earlier that Ronald Reagan had to work with Democrats because they controlled the House and the Senate. In the first term, the first two years of the Obama presidency, he did not need to work with the Republicans. Right now, Donald Trump does not need to work with the Democrats if the Republicans uh, toe the line. But we're seeing that that's not the case. And so I guess my question is, is it better to have this bipartisanship, to have a little bit of give and take on legislation to make it longstanding? It's usually better to have both parties invested in the solution if you're talking about something that is this widespread. Now, it doesn't always happen that the, when Ronald Reagan proposed his first tax cut, he was vociferously opposed by the Democrats. He ended up getting support from Democrats, but they were conservative Democrats in areas that Ronald Reagan had carried with large margins. Uh, so the question is, if you can't have bipartisanship, because one party won't play ball, you have to make sure that every part of your party has a stake in your bill. And that requires compromise, forethought, and leadership. That's what Reagan did in his tax cut bill, make changes to his original proposal to hate a unified Republican conference. And that's what he did in his budget bill in the first year of his presidency, make sure that he had a unified Republican conference so that he would not have to uh, suffer a defeat, given that the Repu Democratic leadership at that time was fighting him tooth and nail. We're not seeing that in the health care debate, certainly not now, and we didn't see that during the Obama White House. Why? What's changed? Reagan came to office at a time when American politics was changing, that the original American political structure, the party structure, was built off of the Civil War structure, where it wasn't based as much on what you believe, but whether you were, you know, whether granddaddy fought for the Union or the Confederacy. So you had conservatives and liberals in the Democrat Party, you had conservatives and liberals in the Republican Party. Reagan's election helped to create what we have today, which is a wholly liberal Democratic Party and a wholly conservative Republican Party. Without that overlap, it's really like two ships that are passing in the night without trying to get to the same destination, that the liberals have one view and the Democrats have another view, and there are very few incentives for them, to, aside from uh, patriotism, to come together. Whereas in Reagan's days, there was a lot more overlap between the parties, less ideological uh, rigidity, and consequently there were people who could talk with one another within the parties because they had more in common. And yet, as a country, most Americans would identify them more as center-right or center-left, not the ideologues on each end of the political spectrum. That's exactly right, and I think that's one of the reasons why you have increasing frustration is that we have a primary system where the party candidates are selected not by bosses with an eye to the general election, but by activists with an, ally, with an eye towards ideology. So the Republican Party puts forward candidates that are more ideologically to the right than their party as a whole. The Democrat Party puts forward more candidates who are more ideologically to the left. And you've got this huge mass of people in the center or the center left or the center right that increasingly feel unrepresented. And they choose the lesser of two evils in a general election. But when some people like these Obama-Trump voters see somebody who cuts between the two ideologies, as for them Trump did, they are happy to see that because they actually want somebody who cuts between the ideology of the two parties. Let's talk about the Speaker of the House for a moment because Tip O'Neill, key in working with Ronald Reagan, he was the last Speaker of the House to voluntarily leave as House Speaker. Everyone since either defeated, lose control of the, of the House, or resign, as we saw most recently with John Boehner. So what does that tell you about 
Speaker uh, of the House Tip O'Neill and, and his relationship with Ronald Reagan and his hold on the Democratic caucus? Well, it tells me that Tip O'Neill was a very smart politician, that he knew how to maintain the at the time. He had a much more diverse caucus than John Boehner had or that Paul Ryan had. He had to combine people who were 100% liberals from downtown New York with people who were 100% conservatives from rural Mississippi. And yet he was able to do it. And he left on his own terms, as you point out. I think it shows what a wise and smart politician he was. And he also, while he opposed Reagan on many things, he also knew how ultimately to cut a deal. And he knew what the incentives of his party were. When he could fight, he fought. When he didn't think it was in his interest to fight, he cut the best deal he knew how to do rather than resist, 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 which seems to be the modus operandi of either party in opposition now. So what are the lessons or what's changed? Has it changed? I think the one is that since the party's incentives have changed, they are more afraid of their primaries than they are of the general elections. Very few people in the House are uh, subject to serious competition in general elections, but they all have to look over their shoulders at primaries. So they tend to hew a more ideological line even than they might prefer because they're afraid of the challenges. I think a little more courage is needed. I also think that there's more in common than uh, many of the ideological warriors on each side would admit. And I think if you had presidential leadership that was encouraging genuine bipartisanship, not bipartisanship to one party to provide a cloak or a veneer for the other party, but genuine give and take, that you might find people in the center right and the center left in each house having the finding courage in presidential leadership. That's something President, President Obama was never willing to exert political capital on behalf of bipartisanship. Uh, President Bush was really never willing to exert political capital on behalf of bipartisanship. And so it's something that's been lost. We haven't seen anybody really try and do that since the pre-impeachment days of Bill Clinton. So let's conclude where we began and talk a little bit more about tax reform, because one of the issues that, that I read about is that Ronald Reagan wanted it revenue neutral. And we're seeing the debate today where many Democrats say, hey, this tax plan is going to blow a hole through the debt and the deficit. Well, the problem with revenue neutrality today is that in order to get that, you have to what, – what made it work politically in Ronald Reagan's days is there was a lot of uneconomically une viable tax shelters. And they benefited a few wealthy Americans and didn't really have a constituency. So that you could take those out and gain revenue and then distribute the gains. It was a large tax hike on some uh, types of corporations and distributed the gains to large tax cuts for individuals. Today, since we don't have those, any sort of revenue neutrality means taking out large tax deductions for which there is a large constituency, whether it's a business constituency or an individual constituency. It would be wiser to take that on and bite the bullet but it's becoming very difficult, particularly when you only uh, have a when you're choosing not to go a bipartisan route, and you have to get all 52 Republicans on board. Any one person who's wedded to a particular tax deduction or tax credit has immense power, and that's why they're looking at the tax cut approach, which is not the best approach. You wrote a piece for National Review, tax reform for the the, the working class poor and working class middle Americans. So how do how does the GOP get there, and do Democrats join them? Well, I think that what the GOP needs to do is give the working class, the Obama-Trump voter, a direct stake in the tax bill. The three ideas I put forward were a cut in the payroll tax, the amount that you pay for Medicare or Social Security. I've, since Medicare is largely paid for by general revenues and not the payroll tax, 
you don't have the same problem that you would with Social Security. That gives people hundreds of dollars a year making less than $30,000 a year. And I also think there should be a tax credit for jobs created in the United States and a tax credit to American businesses that pay above market average salary. In a way, tipping a thumb on the scale so that instead of rewarding shareholders, you're rewarding workers. That's what American workers want. They want more jobs for American citizens, and they want more pay rises for American workers. And I think if you include those things in the bill, you'll have a much greater likelihood of uh, public support for it. And if you're open to it, you might have the likelihood of some Democratic support because you're giving them something. You're giving uh, something to the voters they want to compete for, the Obama-Trump voters, that says you're actually getting something. It's not just a big corporate bailout. Henry Olson, why is America's tax code so complicated? Why does it take so long to complete your taxes, and and why so many loopholes and deductions? Every loophole or deduction starts with a good interest at heart. You know that you try and carve out this to help somebody with this need or this business with this interest, and over time it becomes like barnacles on a ship. Uh, something that you started with one, uh, you pass a couple every year, and suddenly you've got hundreds. And then once these things are in, nobody wants them to go because they actually benefit them from them. That the state and local income tax deduction, which the president's uh, advisors have proposed getting rid of, helps lots of upper middle class couples uh, and individuals reduce their federal tax bill. You get rid of this, and many of these people will see a tax increase. Not that people are talking about it, but that's what will happen. So they naturally will resist that. And then you have so many people who are resisting change, and they can't come together for the common good. That's why it took a year and a half with the president's, uh, President Reagan's proposal to come together. And that was when they were dealing with less protected tax shelters. Today, you should probably have a much longer period of time, but that's not the choice Republicans and the president seem to have made. So this is a hypothetical, but if Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill could sit down with Donald Trump and Paul Ryan, what do you think that they would tell them? What advice would they give the current speaker, the current president, and the House and Senate leadership? Um, I think they would say um, you're dealing with real people. You're not dealing with uh, concepts. You want to try and do something that's best for everybody. Uh, that means that you have to uh, listen to your opponents and try and bring them on board rather than trying to ram something through. Uh, and I think they would say that everyone ne you need to try and make as many winners as possible as opposed to trying to concentrate on a narrow set of winners and make the argument that by helping them you'll help everybody in the long term. I think they would say politics is about the possible, politics is about people, and if you focus on those things you're much likelier to get a bill that is successful and supported than you would if you ignore those things. And your book, The Working Class Republican what did you learn about Ronald Reagan in the prism of what we've been talking about here today? I learned Ronald Reagan was completely different than the Reagan that people talk about. He was somebody who was principled rather than ideological. He was somebody who was suspicious of government, but never uh, a root and branch ripped the government down conservative. He was a person who, having been a Democrat, could see them as human beings and could see their point of view, even as he disagreed with them on many things. He was somebody who was really uh, a bright and original thinker. He created something. His philosophy was not simply stealing Barry Goldwater's thunder. It was a different philosophy, and it was a blend of what was best about Goldwater and what was best about the liberals of his youth, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And he created a center-right philosophy that created a massive majority during his lifetime. Republicans can today can learn what? 
Republicans ought to get back and uh, learn what the real Reagan was about. That the real Reagan was somebody who cared about people first, about, uh, the, as he said, the realities of everyday life, not about abstract concepts. He loved liberty, but he loved people more. His epitaph doesn't talk about liberty or freedom or beating communism. He says, there is worth and purpose to each and every human life. Those are the words Ronald Reagan left us to remember him by. And I think the Republican Party that can take that to heart is one that can rebuild the Reagan coalition and one that can move the country, which is a center-right country, in a center-right direction rather than trying to move it in an ideologically rigid direction that the country doesn't want to go in. Henry Olson, author and also a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Thanks for stopping by our C-SPAN studios. We appreciate your time. Thank you for your time. You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter. And let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes by using the hashtag C-SPAN Sidebar. If you like the program, please like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. By the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.